0: Ladies and gentlemen, the speakers for panel three are S.M.S. Dr. Jarnil Pusujeri and Professor Terian George. Our chairperson is Associate Professor Susanna Kadir of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy NUS. She will introduce the speakers. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Welcome back from
1: lunch and welcome back to panel three carefully titled The Politics of Diversity Management. I think this is an appropriate topic for us to discuss, particularly after lunch, because I'm convinced that the topic and the points that will be raised by the two uh, esteemed speakers will definitely keep us awake. This panel is intended to focus our attention uh, on existing policy frameworks to manage poor identities in in our society. For the most part, these frameworks have been primarily based on the centrality of ethnicity, that is race and religion, in Singapore. But this morning, we heard of new identities which have emerged and have made things far more complex in our understanding of what diversity means. I hope the two speakers will openly address the question of whether our existing policy frameworks are sufficiently flexible to accommodate these new identities, and how best we can manage the increasingly diverse landscape moving forward. Uh, Before I pass the mic to them, please allow me some time to briefly introduce our two speakers. S.M.S. Janil Putacheri was elected Member of Parliament in 2011. He is currently Senior Minister of State Ministry of Communications and Information, and Ministry of Transport. He chairs One People SG, which works to promote racial harmony in Singapore, and the Young PAP, the youth wing of the People's Action Party. To my left, of course, is Cherian George, Professor of Media Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University. He's currently on sabbatical, (coughs) is the inaugural Media at Risk Scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's Ann Burke School of Communication. His main research interests, as many of you know, are in media and politics, censorship, and hate propaganda. He's, most, so he's you know, published extensively, but I just thought I'll mention his most recent book entitled Hate Spin, The Manufacture of Religious Offense and Its Threat to Democracy, published by MIT Press, in 2016, and it won the Best Books 2016 list by Publishers uh, Weekly. Can I now invite SMS Daniel uh, Puticherry to uh, the podium?
2: Good afternoon, thank you very much. And um, you know, after a very scintillating uh, session last night, uh, fascinating discussion this morning, and uh, interesting lunch. I know that uh, the last thing that an august audience like yourselves wants is to listen to two balding middle aged Malayali men on stage. <laughs> you have to thank uh, Janadas Devan for reuniting the band for the third time. Uh, this is not the first time that Cherry and I are sharing a, a rostrum or a stage, but uh, we'll try and not let the side down. So good afternoon <clears throat> and congratulations to IPS on your 30th anniversary and thanks again for inviting me to join you. I'm looking forward to the questions and the discussions. In addressing this issue of the politics of diversity management, you might begin by asking if diversity needs to be managed. Does diversity need to be managed? In most countries, in most societies, and most seminars like this, this would be usually addressed as an ideological position. What is the philosophy that you as a people and we as a people come together around? And there'd be a range of philosophies that would be relevant to the issue of managing diversity, a, a range of approaches as to how to use politics appropriately to manage diversity. But if you take a big picture view, these various philosophies, these various approaches, they lie on a spectrum. And you can think of those, that spectrum in a number of ways. And I might begin by saying, on one axis, you might say, on one hand, you have a very uh, heavy-handed, uh, micromanaging, interventionist approach. And right to the other end, you'd have a laissez-faire, laid-back posture, where you assume that as long as all the other aspects of policy, such as the economy, such as security, general education, social welfare are, are looked after, then the issues of diversity will be look after itself. You might have uh, another way of looking at this axis and say at one end you have an expectation, a social expectation, to see the hand of the state visible, uh, forceful, affirming, active, and right at the other end where the social expectation is that values will drive personal behavior and that you hope and you aspire that personal behavior will overcome the negative outcomes that will arise from the existence of diversity. Another way, another way, is to think that you could deal with this issue ex ante. Let us preclude problems, avoid conflict, go upstream, anticipate the issues, or right at the other end post, mitigate, ameliorate, dampen down the problem if and when it arises. But the reality is there will be negative outcomes as a result of diversity. History has shown us time and time again, left unmanaged, left with no intervention, left with no sight over the matter, the society-wide aggregate of individual choices, the society-wide aggregate of personal behavior have repeatedly, consistently demonstrated negative outcomes for minorities, for people who reflect the various shades of diversity in any society, in every society. When we think of these axes, where a given society lies isn't fixed, nor should it be. Societies change, aspirations change, our view on values change, and the reality is we should also not choose to position ourselves at the same point for all the dimensions of diversity. You cannot treat every issue of diversity in the same way from a purely philosophical point of view. And even if you try to, even those societies that claim a purist ideology driven approach to this idea of diversity are caught off guard when a new variable of diversity is introduced. And, you know, the examples of what's happened in the US, makes a, it's a very public view of what has happened when you, you, you introduce new ideas of what constitutes diversity. And time is required for a social acceptance of a new position on a new issue of diversity. I would argue that here in Singapore, in general, we lie somewhere in the middle. For some of these issues, we've gone much more upstream and interventionist. In race, as an example, we've created that construct of CMIO. And we've based policy around it. We've thought about our national identity and our national education approach around it. That is on one end of the spectrum. We haven't taken an ideological position on this. We have chosen a set of tools to achieve a functional outcome. But even for things where we've move towards a much more laissez-faire approach, a hands-off approach. It is on the basis of what are the outcomes that arise from these issues of diversities. So race, religion, language, gender, social inequality, they've been treated differently for very good reasons. The factors that affect each of these dimensions of diversity along these variables have been different. They include how interested are other countries in the functional outcomes here in Singapore. To what extent does this affect the economic opportunities for the individuals affected by these issues, by these choices or by their circumstances? Is national security an issue or is it not an issue for that dimension of diversity? How might this issue be politicized, people mobilized around it? To what extent is the issue immutable in our construct of race, for example? It is immutable as opposed to, for example, religion. where some of the anxiety and some of how we've chosen to manage it is based on the fact that it is mutable and there is the risk of conversions and proselytization. How is an issue of diversity affected by its trajectory over time just allowing enough time to pass? For example, language and gender. And in considering these desired functional outcomes, we have had to rely on policy sometimes, education usually, and an influence on personal behavior, always. Ultimately, each of these issues has a different relationship to our social values. But social values, as reflected by personal behavior, have to be an important part of how we address these challenges. Because if there's a significant discordance, a divergence between our social values and our policies, we're not going to have peace and harmony on any of these dimensions. So, these issues have been handled differently by the political leadership for good reasons, but usually with some elements of policy, education, and an influence on social behaviour. The title of this seminar, Diversity's New and Old, new and old I was just checking I was in the right place, uh, gives us the opportunity to think through the successes and the lessons from the political management of the old and ask how we might approach the new. Despite my assertions that um, all diversities should be addressed differently, there are some commonalities in the desired outcomes. To take a misquoted leaf from Tolstoy's opening of Anna Karenina, you know, each diversity can cause divisions in different ways, but cohesion, peace, and harmony will always be desirable. Regardless of which issue of diversity you look at, the primary outcome we have desired, we have aspired to, is an increasingly cohesive society through an increasingly enlarged common space, together with a shared sense of progress. It's not, a, it's not an either or, it's all three of those things together. An increasingly cohesive society through an increasingly enlarged common space and a sense of progress togetherness. And shy away from, move away from, as far as possible, a zero sum approach trying not to frame the matter as winners and losers. Think about all these issues that I've talked about, race, language, religion, gender, social inequality. <clears throat> I might just pause there for a minute. I, I know I've mentioned gender three times. Uh, before anybody gets too excited, you know, I'm not floating any trial balloons or flying any kites. Uh, I'm referring to gender in its historical, traditional sense, the emancipation, the education, the healthcare, the access to social equality of women. Think of the progress that we have made over the last 53 years. Think of each of these issues, race, language, religion, gender, social inequality. Could you imagine a sense of cohesion today if in each of these dimensions, there needed to be winners and losers for us to progress? Can you imagine going forward and engaging with the community and explaining that in order to progress, somebody has to be a winner and somebody has to be a loser? We want and we need progress around equality, around diversity, without the sense of anyone losing. And our approach thus far has worked. You can see progress, the lived experience has changed, the functional outcomes have improved. And today Singaporeans in general expect that this is the way things should be, that this is the norm. We have now achieved a social expectation for middle ground politics and middle ground policies. Attempts at extremes of Mobilization, extremes of politicization, extremes of tribalism are generally not well-received and not well-rewarded. It's not to say that that progress has been ideal for all of these issues and that there isn't still work to be done. We have not arrived completely. There is much work to be done to manage all these dimensions of diversity. And part of this is because as we make progress, there are negative consequences that we have to deal with as we make progress. People who are disadvantaged by diversity in some form, some unintended consequences, and who need some intervention to level the playing field to provide that equality of opportunity. What might we make of this recent heightened anxiety on social mobility and income inequality? And what might we make of that anxiety, especially in light of the numbers that we see, the positive trends in income growth, education outcomes, employment, housing, healthcare, all of this and policies that have delivered transformative functional outcomes for us as a society. And we've seen the graphs, we've discussed the numbers. But the reality is that much of the current angst is about social stratification, assortative marriage in Professor Thessera's slides, dignity, cohesion, perceptions of fairness and identity. These are not dimensions that can be managed through policy. These are about our subjective well being, our aspirations, and ultimately about our confidence in our future. In thinking about this, I think one of the key issues that we need to recognize in the management of diversity is that there is, for any given individual, an element of random chance of luck. You don't choose your parents. An individual doesn't have a choice over which of these variables affect them, for better or worse, and so at the start of your life, it's not a choice or a morality or an attitude, it's random luck. We need processes and tools to deal with that and policies to introduce a moral element of social development to mitigate the influence of chance. That's what we have done and this is what we have to continue to do and in order to do it well, we need to recognize that element of chance that needs to be mitigated. We have to hold fast to these ideals in terms of social outcomes, that we want this cohesive society through an enlarged common space and a shared aspiration of progress. And without all three of these functional outcomes consistently, repeatedly delivered and strengthened by every change that we make for policy, we're not going to be able to manage diversity positively. If you don't have these three things, whatever our aspirations for the future are going to be, we're not gonna make progress. And we need that as a platform because whether the, I, issues of diversity are historical, the problems that are still extant today, or some new issues that become significant over time, we need that platform of confidence going forward. This has been our approach to meritocracy and diversity. And not all meritocracies are the same. Just as not all democracies are the same, each democracy has its own unique social compact and aspirations. Our meritocracy has to be managed with an understanding of what Janadas talked about this morning, the plural values around the diversity that we hold dear. And he encapsulated that in this idea that our dignity and moral worth must not be equated with economic worth, the beginning of our discussion this morning. Our meritocracy has brought us far and continues to be the best way of ensuring that our ideal outcomes remain possible. We haven't got there yet but we have to hold on to an ideal that makes it possible. Meritocracy does generate negative consequences. There are problems, but we should, can, and we will deal with them, rather than assuming that the entire approach is not working. The foundation of the political management of diversity remains meritocracy, and like democracy, it's not perfect. And like democracy, again, poorly quoting Winston Churchill, it may well be the least worst way of dealing with an imperfect world as we try to make this imperfect world better for all of us. Thank you very much.
1: Can I now invite
3: Sharon? In? Uh, first of all, a big congratulations to uh, my friends at the Institute of Policy Studies on the occasion of its 30th anniversary. Uh, One thing that uh, Susanna left out from my bio was that in a past life I was a proud adjunct of IPS. Uh, So especially, uh, uh, thank you to my friends um, Arun and Tomiko uh, for believing in this young punk when he was at the bottom of the escalator many years ago. Uh, I hope IPS uh, still believes me now that I am an older balding punk still close to the bottom of the escalator. Uh, we've been talking today about finding uh, unity in diversity. Uh, in recent years, we've seen countries with far longer histories of nation building succumb to the politics of division. Hate is suddenly a more potent motivator than hope in democratic politics. This global pattern can't be coincidental. The best thinkers on this subject suggest that the world is at a uh, historic inflection point as significant as, say, the end of the Cold War. Uh, They say we are perhaps witnessing the end of the free market ideology of neoliberalism as the default mode for society. Uh, Pankaj Mishra, in his book, The Age of Anger, probably does the best job of analyzing these times. He suggests that the 1990s uh, neoliberal wave sparked aspirations among peoples everywhere that could not possibly be satisfied because they were based on a materialist ethic and mindless emulation, not genuine needs or sustainability. The resulting resentment, a mix of envy, humiliation and powerlessness, is poisoning civil society, undermining political liberty and causing a global turn to authoritarianism and chauvinism. Uh, Mainstream elites and political parties around the world haven't found a replacement for the neoliberal order Populists and demagogues who are filling the void don't have a cure either, but what they do have is the snake oil of scapegoatism and the salesmanship to hawk it effectively. There is an economic debate to be had about this, and we had some of it this morning, but this is not the space, nor am I the person for it. Instead, I'd like to reflect on the kind of political values that would best equip us for this age. I want to suggest that Singapore's horizontal people-to-people relations, as well as our vertical government-people relations, need strengthening. Uh, Before analysing some of these weaknesses though, I should emphasise that I don't think that the worst that we've seen elsewhere will visit our shores. We do have some natural immunity to these trends elsewhere. Uh, One advantage we enjoy is that no single religion enfolds a majority of Singaporeans. Uh, which means politicians can gain no electoral advantage from religious nationalism. A big advantage. Uh, Second, we have compulsory voting. More than 90% of the electorate habitually participates, and this means that election results are not prone to hijack by highly mobilized but unrepresentative groups, while more reasonable people stay at home. Third, we are city-state. So like most large cities everywhere, we are in fact more inclined to cosmopolitan values but unlike most cities, these values are not in contention with the large rural hinterland or economically backward regions where intolerant forms of nationalism tend to take root. So my concern today is not motivated by some fear of impending doom but simply by a sense that our nation could do so much better. We are certainly not spared the fundamental contradictions that have always plagued modern societies. Our earliest nation builders recognised the tension between, on the one hand, enabling the pursuit of individual happiness and prosperity, which is essential for state legitimacy, and on the other, striving for collective identity and a cooperative instinct that we need for national survival. Uh, This is the concern at the heart of our 52-year-old national pledge, The fact that we continue to grapple with this tension is in part a problem of success in creating an island of opportunity for individuals and their families. As individuals, we have come to equate progress with ever-widening choice in material comforts and lifestyles. Uh, Social mobility, for most of us, means escaping the masses out of the void deck into the country club, into ever more exclusive circles where we can be increasingly fashion-conscious about what we eat and wear, finicky about the neighbourhoods we live, and fastidious about our forms of worship. The rise of what Mishra calls revolutionary individualism or revolution of aspiration was encouraged by Singapore's embrace of neoliberalism in the 1990s when the market became an ethic, not just a tool. In the resulting, privatised, gated version of the Singapore dream, There's not much room for other Singaporeans. Gotong Royong is out, jealously guarded entitlement is in. Live and let live is replaced by intolerance, by snobberies of class, culture and creed. What should we be aiming for instead? I think there are at least three distinct ways of approaching the goal of national unity. The first is to think of it as a question of social order. This approach sees cohesion mainly as a security imperative. Ethnic diversity is regarded as a disadvantage, but acknowledged as a given that we can't erase, so let's at least make sure that it doesn't blow up in our faces. As for political diversity, there are fewer compunctions about forcing a consensus. When we view diversity through this lens of social order, we end up outsourcing its management, along with other security problems, to the state. A second alternative approach emphasises the principle of reciprocity. We expect our rights to be respected, but by the same token, recognise the rights of others, even if this means we don't always get our own way. So we create fair and transparent rules for handling disputes, and we will honour the outcomes of these procedures. The legitimacy of the system hinges on everyone's equal ability to participate in it. In this view, it's okay if we don't always get our way, at least if we get our say. A third approach to managing diversity is based on a civic ethos, where people's notion of the good life or a good society factors in the well-being of others, including people very different from ourselves. This worldview would be in evidence when, for example, the leaders and members of a majority faith instinctively rise in defense of minority religions when they are under attack. Another indicator of strong civic ethos would be when people are willing to support higher personal income taxes if it meant that their children can grow up in a more civilized environment with more social justice, less poverty. This is part of the social compact in some societies and if it seems wildly unrealistic Too idealistic for Singapore, well, that just goes to show that it's not been part of our public discourse for a long time. We shouldn't think, though, that this civic ethos is a totally foreign idea. It almost made its way into our national pledge. Uh, Go take a look at S. Rajaratnam's first draft of the pledge. It didn't say what it says now, that the goal is to, quote, to achieve happiness, prosperity, and progress for our nation. No, it said, We will seek happiness and progress by helping one another. I actually find this a more meaningful statement than Lee Kuan Yew's edited version because it makes clearer what nationhood actually demands of us. Seek happiness by helping one another. A strong civic ethos combined with the principle of reciprocity form the best defence against attempts to divide us. They thicken our horizontal bonds. They are the antidotes to the law of the jungle, might-is-right thinking, being pushed by hate-mongers around the world. However, unfortunately, it is the realpolitik social order argument that tends to dominate the government's rhetoric about managing difference. We have been taught for half a century to view differences of culture and opinion as a disadvantage, as potentially dangerous fault lines. Vulnerability has become national ideology, treating difference of any kind, race, religion, but also political, as something to fear rather than to celebrate. The management of difference is framed in negative terms, riot prevention. This sort of thinking does not permit horizontal people-to-people trust to thicken. It feeds into the very kind of fear and zero-sum thinking, your difference is potentially at the cost of my well-being that is being encouraged and exploited by populists everywhere. The ideas of reciprocal rights, inclusive and fair processes, and of a civic responsibility to the strangers beyond our families and tribes are essentially democratic values. Now it may seem odd right now to hitch our hopes on democratic values considering the crisis that some democracies are in. Uh, Political scientists even talk of a democratic recession And indeed, it's difficult to maintain faith in one person, one vote uh, when this system has delivered Donald Trump, Brexit and a number of dangerous far-right parties in Europe. But the correct response to these events is to find ways to make democracy work better rather than to abandon it and to defect to Chinese or Russian-style autocracy. That would be as rational as saying that since your heart medication has got unpleasant side effects, you're going back to smoking. Democratic values are still the best answer, not the cause of the self-serving individualism we've been talking about. And this is not some contraband notion that I smuggled in on SQ21 from America yesterday. Uh, This too is an idea at the core of our national pledge. When the founding fathers of our republic wanted a way to focused children's mind on nation building, on accomplishing unity and diversity, what did, what did they do? They wrote a pledge to build a democratic society. Democracy as they saw it wasn't the problem. Democracy was the solution. And here's where I need to add another word to uh, Minister Desmond Lee's mention of four values uh, that are good for nation building. He mentioned meritocracy, fairness, cohesion, trust. He is in fact departing from the original vision in the pledge that it is built primarily on democratic society. Of course, the PAP continues to embrace democratic institutions insofar as uh, reasonably free and fair elections give it the legitimacy to rule. There is also a non-trivial sense in which the formal constitutional separation of powers is still maintained. But The pledge doesn't merely say that we, the citizens of Singapore, will protect and preserve democratic structures that we have inherited. No, it requires citizens to build a democratic society. It's supposed to be an ongoing, active process in which all of us are supposed to participate. So contained in our pledge is the understanding that when we all collectively build this democratic society, when we think horizontally, not just vertically, We will learn to recognize one another as equal citizens despite our differences. Indeed, we will discover that we have mutual stakes in one another's rights. My group protects your group's dignity today because otherwise we know that we may be victims of intolerance tomorrow. This is what we pledge, but this is the meaning that has been, I think, hollowed out in the decades since those words were written. The PAP's preferred model of democracy is one where citizens stay out of the kitchen, and entrust the job to professional cooks. This minimal conception of democratic government as elections uh, fails to harness fully the nation-building potential of democracy that PAP ideologue and wordsmith S. Rajaratnam wrote into the pledge, and his editor Lee Kuan Yew did not remove. Singapore's illiberal approach to democracy creates another problem relevant to today's theme. It is behind certain policy failures that have depleted the political capital that the PAP itself needs to fulfil its nation-building mandate. Now recall that the PAP has always maintained that it's more than just another political party. It is a national movement. And I don't think this is just hype. One of the positive side effects of one-party dominance is that the PAP straddles the class, ethnic and sectoral spectrum We don't, in fact, think of the PAP as the party of any one group, unlike multi-party democracies elsewhere where uh, competition produces a kind of market segmentation such that parties tend to have narrower bases, They are either pro-worker or pro-business, rural or urban, religious or secular, for example. Uh, The PAP has tried to occupy the full spectrum. Uh, The PAP's character as a national movement has been an important resource in Singapore's management of difference. Because in intra-societal disputes, people generally felt that they could trust this, res- uh, this referee, even if not everyone liked him. Uh, to the extent that the PAP was dictatorial, at least it was an equal opportunity dictator. Thus, one of the traditional strengths of the PAP has been its reputation as a generally neutral arbiter among competing interests and groups. I say this has been a traditional strength because I don't think it is as true today as it was before. The PAP's mismanagement of immigration in particular has tarnished its reputation as the protector of ordinary Singaporeans' interests. It has allowed nativists to claim some of that space. When disaffection finally bubbled over in 2011 election, the government finally moderated its uh, immigration policies, but lasting damage had already been done to its moral legitimacy. Uh, Two signal events, each unprecedented in its own way, reveals the extent of that damage. First, in 2013, the government's population white paper and its 6.9 million population planning figure was rebuffed even in Parliament. The government could not carry the ground because people simply did not trust that it was acting in their interests. Then in 2014, Philippine nationals in Singapore had to abort their Independence Day celebration in Orchard Road on the advice of police after online protests. Now, remember, this is a country that is trusted to host some of the world's most sensitive meetings, like the Shangri-La Dialogues and the uh, Trump-Kim summit. So it's inconceivable that the police, in fact, could not guarantee the safety of this party at Neon City. The cancelling of the event was rather an admission by the government that it had so depleted its political capital with regard to the immigration issue that it could not carry the ground, despite knowing what the right thing to do was. Now, the government may have learned to treat immigration policy more sensitively since then, but it does not seem to want to get to the bottom of how it made this mistake in the first place. If it did, I think there's no running away from the fact that part of the uh, fault lay in the fact that it had stifled the immigration debates over the preceding one or two decades. And this was a key reason why unhappiness had been allowed to build up. Now, Of course the government says that it consults internally and externally that uh, important decisions are open to debate. But just as many countries claim to believe in free trade, but in practice operate a whole regime of regulations and tariffs to protect their markets. The Singapore government likewise uh, ensures that the trade in information and ideas never challenges its monopoly. And it's unclear how this anti-competitive approach helps Singapore or the PAP itself in the 21st century. We know that in every other enterprise, the stress testing of vigorous competition brings out the best in people and organisations. We know that external scrutiny and transparency are the safest checks against abuse. So it's hard to see why these common sense rules don't apply to government and politics, where instead a dominant monopoly that is its own regulator is somehow supposed to deliver better results for stakeholders. This model has already compromised the quality of decision making and led to an unnecessary avoidable depletion of the PAP's political capital. And it's at odds with the clarion call contained in in our pledge that we, the citizens of Singapore, are fellow nation builders. Now, this event, like other IPS conferences, is partly a showcase of uh, Singapore's fourth generation leadership. I hope 4G is not just the old operating system in a shiny new body, but a major upgrade that fixes bugs that we've lived with for too long. In the next leadership turnover, It would be nice if our leaders were so confident in themselves and their product that they would be prepared to lower the protectionist barriers around the marketplace of ideas and to subject itself and its people to uh, constant stress testing. Equally overdue is a leadership able to model an enthusiasm for multiculturalism deeper than the superficiality of colourful costumes and spicy cuisine. Uh, Not just to appeal to tourists, but more importantly, to get Singaporeans to see diversity mainly as a source of vitality, and not always as a vulnerability. Until we see our diversity glass as more than half full, as mainly a strength with some accompanying risks, rather than as a massive liability with some incidental benefits like Batik and Chengdu, we are not going to live up to our pledge. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Cherian. Thank you both for uh, sort of uh, great opposing uh, positions. Uh, I found them diametrically opposed. (laughs) Uh, I actually wanted to start off again, like uh, uh, Eleanor, to sort of exercise my prerogative and uh, asked two questions, uh, one to uh, Janelle, one to Cherian. Uh, in the presentation, I think General talked about uh, the sort of challenges that come from the politicization uh, of diversity uh, and highlighted the opportunities uh, that we can uh, sort of, uh, or, or lessons that we would have learned from the successes uh, in how we have managed uh, sort of old uh, diversity, so to speak, And I wanted to uh, make a reference to something that happened very recently. Uh, There was a CNA documentary uh, that was aired, uh, which shall remain unnamed at this point. I was away at the time when the documentary was was aired, uh, and then I was quite surprised when I switched on my phone that there was this whole slew of messages uh, in a very urgent manner sort of sent out to me, asking me to take a look at the documentary. Uh, And uh, a lot of the messages were highlighting uh, negative stereotypes uh, in reference to uh, sort of old fault lines in the way that we've talked about it, which are uh, notions of race and religion, uh, and how the documentary reinforced uh, key problems in these old fault lines (coughs) that have not been addressed. Uh, and how it uh, asked for us to think or asked the government to think about how these fault lines needed to be addressed. So my question is really about how we look at these sort of old fault lines, if I, if I can use the word, old notions of diversity uh, in the context of all the earlier discussion when we talk about the new, right? So to what extent have we been able to manage these old... Um, sort of uh, fault lines in a way that enables us now to embrace the new, and how do we, how do we actually do that? Uh, my question really for, for Cherian, Cherian's argument is for us to move towards a new operating system. Uh, and you talked about three ways in which we could approach uh, or think about the management of diversity, right? One in which it was state-led, uh, going all the way to another one in which we really entrusted uh, society uh, to, 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 to do so, right? Um, I guess I wanted to push you on the extent to which we have uh, progress in the evolution in terms of these frameworks, right? Uh, as opposed to thinking about it as static. In other words, that it has only remained state-led uh, and that we've not moved in the direction in which there is greater trust uh, in society to manage Both old and new diversities. So maybe we'll have you answer these questions and then we'll open it out to the floor.
2: Thank you, thank you. Um, Well, the CNA documentary is called Regardless of Class. I I can name that. (laughs) And the third of a trilogy while I'm selling the Koyo between regardless of race and religion over the last two years. Um, Well, uh, I think the question that you've asked and the reaction that you've described uh, from your friends, actually highlights the fact that the old fault lines are still there. And while we talk of old diversities and new diversities, we talk of the progress that we've made, and I'm happy to talk of and celebrate the progress that we've made, we shouldn't forget that these issues are not um, absent. They are mitigated and they're dealt with. Um, Take one example. Uh, Pauline Strong reminded us this morning of the issue of Women's progress, and rightly so in her intervention about how the view of men towards marrying women has changed over 53 years. Over 53 years, with the education and change in social values, access to employment of women, the situation today is not still ideal, it's not solved, it's still there. It continues to be an issue when we think about childcare and raising families and the responsibilities of men. Similarly so for race. In fact, much more so for race. Um, And I would argue that the old fault lines for race haven't disappeared, despite our aspirations and our wish for it to be so. If I can turn to the specifics of that documentary, people watching it have assumed that we cast it deliberately to reinforce racial stereotypes. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you'd watched the other film we made, this was exactly something that I advocated against. The people we interviewed, that we put into the film were the people who turned up, the people who were prepared to share their stories, their stories of difficulty, their challenges, their personal pains. Very few people said yes. Almost everybody said no. The People who turned up, the people who said yes, got put into the film. And I think if you as a watcher look at that and think that now a racial stereotype is being reinforced, you have to ask yourself, what is the social bias with which you watch a film? We didn't ask for people of a particular race to turn up, we asked for people of a particular profession to turn up. But you as the watcher are concerned about that person's race. We didn't ask for a particular student of a particular race to turn up, we asked for someone from a particular educational stream. But you as the viewer are concerned about the race portrayed There's an explicit narrative in the documentary, but there's also an implicit narrative, and we had hoped to hold up a mirror to society, to the perceptions and bias of you, the viewer. So I think the reaction to me demonstrates that race is still an extant issue in our society, and something we have to continually work hard at. So the short answer to your question is that when someone of a particular race comes forward as representing either their educational stream or their profession, I sh- didn't feel and the CNA producers didn't feel appropriate turning them away because of their race. And I think that is what the critics and the people who circulate the various messages that you saw were asking me to do. That would be the exactly the wrong thing
3: Thanks, Zaina. Um, Well, I should uh, first clarify that uh, the change in operating system that I was uh, requesting was not actually away from a state-led model uh, because I think for reasons of uh, path dependence, uh, Singapore is well and truly stuck with a state-led society Uh, and I remind myself of this whenever I'm on the roads and, for example, I look at the number of wayside trees that we have. There's no way that uh, those trees can be maintained without a big state. Uh, It simply cannot retreat. Uh, We are stuck with that model. So um, my question really is what kind of leadership the state provides. Uh, And we need to move away from the idea of race and religion as overwhelmingly a source of vulnerability, uh, as a fault line, uh, which is partly true, but that's surely not the whole story. Uh, And We need to move towards uh, what is in fact A reality is not made up that uh, that our racial and other forms of diversity are in fact a source of what makes Singapore wonderful. Um, Until that uh, that discourse comes very naturally from the government, you're not going to have uh, Singaporeans trust one another. If you don't have Singaporeans trusting one another, uh, all this uh, kind of community, you know, gotong royong that. Desmond Lee was talking about this morning, it's not going to happen. We're going to continue relying on the state because we simply don't trust our fellow citizens. Uh, there has, you asked, has there been progress? Uh, yes, I think that um, there has been a much more conscious attempt uh, to get um, citizens to appreciate other cultures more. Um, there's a lot of good work being done with youth, including by One People SG that uh, that uh, Dr. Poticherry leads. Um, but there's still something missing. The, what, what I have been waiting uh, for three Prime Ministers to tell me, and they haven't, is how does growing up in the midst of Malay, Indian and other Singaporeans make Chinese Singaporeans a better people? If you ask uh, a Malay or an Indian that in Singapore, my guess is that a large number of them would be able to say yes. I'm glad I grew up in. Um, speaking as an Indian, I'm glad I've grown up in a society that has Malays and Chinese, and not only because of Zuraida, my wife, <laughs> but I'm glad that uh, that I've gained, in fact, from the multiculturalism around me. It has in many ways, um, moderated some of my the Indianness in me that's given me new dimensions, given me new choices and so on. I've yet to hear a uh, Chinese PAP leader make that argument. I hope it will come with our next prime minister. I've yet to hear it. Uh, instead, the overwhelming message has been that these are fault lines that cannot be wished away which means that diversity is over—that uh, over overwhelmingly a risk factor. Everything else is just mitigation. Uh, as long as that's the case, uh, we're not gonna get far. And I know there, that there'll be realists, the PAP is full of uh, realists, uh, self-described realists, uh, who say, no, that's far too rosy a view. I don't necessarily see that as any more realistic a view than the view that I'm presenting. I like what uh, Minister Lee said this morning that Uh, race is a social construct. Uh, I think diversity and multiculturalism are also social constructs. Uh, The way we view diversity is social construct and unfortunately overwhelmingly the experience of diversity has been constructed by the PAP as primarily a risk factor. It needn't be. It is partly a risk factor. It is in my view overwhelmingly a plus and it is not reassuring to me as a member of the minority that the messaging uh, from the government has lacked this dimension.
1: Yes. Okay, we'll open it now to the floor for questions. Uh, there's, uh, I think, someone on my left.
4: Go ahead. Yes. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Doreen um, and I'd like to suggest that one way of managing diversity is by creating opportunities for constructive dialogue between differing camps. So, with regard to the divide on sexual orientation and gender identity, it is very difficult for us to discuss LGBTQ issues in mainstream media because of our content codes, which prohibit the um, which prohibit the transmission of content which promotes or justifies the homosexual lifestyle. So, as a result. We have very little or no positive portrayal of LGBT people on local TV. If you watch Channel 8, you will think that LGBT people are serial killers, or effeminate men running around in feather boas, just waiting for the right woman to come around and straighten them out by the end of the entire drama series. So it is no wonder that there are some Singaporeans who think that LGBT people are deviants, perverts, pedophiles, or that sexual orientation or gender identity is changeable. So to counteract these misconceptions and to create opportunities to build bridges, um, I have two cents to share. The first cent I will share is that I suggest the removal of the prohibition against the positive portrayal of LGBT people, or at least moving such portrayals to a later time belt. And my second cent um, goes back to the Sid documentary that we mentioned earlier. Perhaps also we could have a regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity episode. Thank you. So you were making proposals. Did you have a question? I was sharing my thoughts. Okay, that's good.
1: Do you want to respond
2: to that? (laughs) I think she is looking for a response. Uh, (laughs) Even though there wasn't a question. Well, firstly, um, I don't choose what the next episode is going to be. I'll see what CNA makes a pitch for but I'll pass your message on, they're here. Um, I think, uh, I, I take your point about constructive dialogue and we need to create platforms and opportunities for constructive dialogue. I think before we can think about what happens in the mainstream media broadcast code, the reality is can we even have this type of constructive dialogue around that issue in person? Are there forums and platforms where community leaders can usefully engage and try to think of what are the issues where there is a middle ground on this matter? And I don't know that we are there yet. If you ask me for the other fault lines, could I, could I generate a dialogue behind closed doors Do I have a forum or a platform where we could get together, talk about race, talk about religion, talk about ageism, talk about class in a non-threatening way and have some kind of common understanding that we need to seek some progress without vilifying the other, without making somebody out to be the bad guy, I would say yes. But on this issue, I don't think we're there yet. This is an issue where In reality, today, the dialogue has been polarized by people who sit at either extremes of opinion, and the broad middle ground is not yet ready to get engaged with this dialogue. People who sit at extremes have, as a result of the natural tendency of activism and mobilization and engagement with larger society, had to generate a narrative where someone is the good guy and someone is the bad guy. Nobody wakes up in the morning wanting to be the bad guy. I think we need to find a way to have a conversation about this, where people are not vilified, people are not demonized, in either direction. That requires compromise, a sense of progress from both ends of the spectrum. And I think until we are there, comfortably there, we're not going to be in a position to think about the broadcast space or anything else that's highly visible outside of closed doors. This will take some time if it's even possible. It will take the same approach that we've had to do for other divisive issues. Personal, hand-holding by people who are interested in reaching out that hand of friendship across the divide. And, and I think there are individuals who feel that way. The question is whether they will be given the space and time to engage with their communities and make that sense of progress possible. I think it's something worth doing but it's going to take some time and some effort.
1: Cherian um, you want to respond to her? And sure. but I also thought maybe you might want to respond to this question about the, this, you know, we're not ready, right? That sort mm-hmm. of this middle ground is just, sure. we're not quite sure that it's ready and we probably right. are still you know, not ready yet for, for this transition.
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously politicians have to read the ground carefully and um, will be rewarded or punished if they don't uh, do it right at the next elections. Uh, and so they have a, have a strong interest in, in reading the ground accurately. Um, but I find it, uh, you know, th- there's a certain selectivity in the government's uh, approach to reading the ground and its decisions of whether to follow the ground or to lead the ground. Yeah? There are of course many issues on which the government has no hesitation in being two steps or one step ahead of the masses. Um, and the entire you know development and uh, nation building project saw the PAP leading the masses, often way ahead. This is precisely how Singapore got its uh, fine nation reputation. Yeah, it was Singapore. The Singapore government didn't wait for the majority of Singaporeans to agree that spitting is not a good thing. You know. That uh, the majority of Singaporeans agree that courtesy was a good thing, you know, uh, before it took action. No, it, it led from the front, often uh, using a great amount of force and coercion uh, to to lead the way. Um, certainly on on many economic issues, uh, preparing the um, the people for a more modern economy and so on. It is it was way ahead of the people. On certain other issues, though, it has been behind or tried to be in the middle, these are ideological choices, as uh, Walter reminded us uh, uh, th- this this morning. Yeah? These are not neutral choices. The choice of whether to lead public opinion or to follow public opinion is an ideological choice. But it just so happens that on, unfortunately on many of these progressive issues, the government uh, has said that it is not ideological, but pragmatically it's chosen to follow. Um, but that itself is a political choice. It's not a neutral choice. Um, Of course, I sympathize with the government needing to to, uh, deal with uh, people on various sides um, with their own strong points of view, including on the 377 uh, debate. Uh, But you raise a very good point, uh, the questions of censorship and so on. Maybe it would be unrealistic to expect um, a public broadcaster to lead the debate by having a documentary like that. But is it unrealistic to say that at least the activists who want to do it on their own steam should not be obstructed and certainly should not be punished? And unfortunately, that is the reality right now, that if you look at the conservative, progressive spectrum on many of these issues, uh, where the government says that it is just playing a referee. In fact, it's not, it is a biased referee. Uh, it, uh, it is an open secret that activists for certain progressive causes are not just obstructed but also blacklisted. It can affect their employment prospects, for example. Uh, it can certainly affect their ability to organise. That does not sound to me like a neutral referee. That sounds to me like a referee that has decided that it wants the conservatives to win. So th- in that spirit, I certainly agree with you that these are the questions we need to ask about the role of government uh, in, in managing culture, in, uh, in deciding what kind of activism is permitted and what kind of activism is punished. Uh, there is a clear bias for uh, conservative groups and against progressive causes.
2: I, I, I'm sorry, Susan. I, I have to jump <laughs> okay. in. I have to come in. I would argue that some of the comments that uh, Professor George has made, these are not ideological choices. I mean, you can see them as ideology if you disagree. I disagree. I think that many of these are practical, pragmatic political choices about what can be done, what society will accept. And I find myself in the very unusual position of asking Professor George to agree with me that his aspiration would be. For our government to be a little less coercive, surely, surely a significant thrust of his speech that he has made and much of what he has written is that we should be less coercive going forward in general. Um, and, And I think that kind of aspiration that we need to be less coercive because people feel a sense of engagement and empowerment around social issues and around the progress of our society has to be seen as a positive development after 53 years. But are we less coercive on certain issues?
3: Hmm? Are we less coercive on some... Well,
2: Do you want us to be less coercive or more coercive? I Uh, can't decide what you
3: want. (laughs) Sorry, let me make that clear since the the question has been asked. (laughs) Uh, I would say be uh, much less coercive um, in dealing with uh, activists on the progressive side, including, uh, you know, uh, censor them less, uh, don't stand in the way... We're not even asking for government to come out and agree with them. We're not even asking for government to put money into public service documentaries, uh, you know, that support this cause. We're just saying step back. If, you in, if indeed uh, you sincerely believe, as uh, the PAP, that we have to let society evolve uh, and uh, government will watch carefully, watch the evolution, and move in step with society. If you sincerely believe that, then let society evolve. Don't don't obstruct activists that are trying to persuade their uh, their fellow citizens of a certain point of view. Uh, and there are documented uh, cases, but of course these are, uh, I would I would be the first to admit that the proof isn't um, conclusive because the way these things are done are hidden. But there, like I said, it's an open secret that activists for certain causes, like the death penalty like uh, LGBT rights, are penalised. They are obstructed and penalised. There are re- personal repercussions for them, and I'm uh, quite sure that the similar repercussions uh, do not befall activists that on the other side of the spectrum. So it is a selectivity of coercion, it is a selectivity of liberalisation that is a worry. Um, But of course, if indeed um, that is part of, that is the government's uh, position and platform, then come out and say it. Don't say that you are just being a neutral referee and letting society evolve. Come out and say that no, no, actually you do believe this progressive cause is evil and you're going to side with conservatives.
1: um,
2: I know, if I keep going we'll never (laughs) end.
1: I want to take the questions from the floor, and then you can come back to that at the end. Uh, So Gemin had been standing there, and then Ambassador Tomiko wants to come in as well. So we'll take your question first, and then uh, we'll take Ambassador Tomiko's question, and then I'll uh,
0: pass it over again. Thank you. Thank you, Susanna. I um, like what uh, Chairman George said about looking at diversity as a positive thing and not worrying about it as a potentially disruptive. I mean, I know there are fault lines, but uh, there's always the other side. I want to ask about meritocracy, which we know is here to stay, like um, other parts of our nation building. Now, can we have a form of meritocracy that is less linear? Because as I see it, Singapore is rather numerically obsessed. We Um, much as I admire DPM-Tamen, I don't like this escalator analogy, because it's unidirectional. In fact, it's only going up. It's going up at a particular speed. Who decides the speed? Um, I, well, between the vertical and the horizontal, I think there are many, many other directions, and in fact, Uh, DPM Tarman has said that we should not uh, look at achievements in, while he has said in the past, especially in relation to education. So can I ask for, if it's possible, can I ask the panelists to evolve a meritocracy that is more multi-directional, less linear, and therefore, especially, we do not have the ruling party, which is obviously at the top, telling everyone at the bottom, even if they listen, what to do. Thank you.
1: So Ambassador Tomiko, we'll take your question and then uh, I'll let the panelists answer.
5: Um, I, I want to respond to charon's uh, challenge. Charon said he's been waiting all his life to hear an ethnic Chinese Singaporean declare publicly that, that growing, up, growing up in a multi-ethnic, multicultural Singapore has made him a better person than if he were to grow up in a mono-ethnic, mono society like Hong Kong, where you live. I want to publicly say that I think I'm a better person because I've learned valuable things from my Malay brothers and sisters. Thank not. Uh, there are there are two important concepts in the Malay Indonesian culture. Gotong royong is one. The value that the Malay community attaches to helping one another. I think it's a valuable um, tenet that I want to embrace. The other one is Mushawara that. We consult one another, we try to accommodate each other's point of view, and we try to arrive at a consensus. What have I learned from my argumentative Indian brothers, Arun and Kishore? Uh, I think they've also made me a better person. Um, More patient. How? By, (laughs) no, but I, I, by, by valuing, valuing ideas, by, by valuing ideas and by being willing to engage in a vigorous exchange of views and to agree disagreeably. I, I think these are important benefits have arrived from growing up in a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. And I would say it has made me a better ethnic Chinese Singaporean.
1: Sir uh, question on meritocracy.
2: I think um, Prof. Ko needs to join me in making the next film with CNA. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I would argue this idea of a less linear meritocracy is indeed something that we should value. I think it's something that is already starting to happen. <coughs> um, if you think of the extent to which we want to. Reimagine the future of adult learning and the skills future. This idea that we can have multiple pathways in our career, that education isn't a discrete handful of years from 16 to 19. Maybe we can start work earlier and never stop learning. But the, the heart of it is this idea of a non-linear meritocracy. Whatever is your first choice, it's only the first of many choices. And I think the young uh, of today, the students that I come in contact with, the, the youth, the young adults, they have begun to take this on. They are not in a rush to find that perfect job, uh, partly because they're waiting for that perfect job to turn up before they say <laughs> yes. Um, they, they're willing to experiment, consider other careers, consider doing multiple things at once. Um, and, I, and I think they are thinking of their education and their life trajectory in that way. Uh, oh, it may have also have negative consequences. I suspect Minister Josephine will, uh, will be, continue to worry as to whether people get married uh, as people make these non-linear choices. Uh, but I think it's happening. These changes take a lot of time because it speaks to the idea of what counts as a satisfactory life. It speaks to the idea of what are the expectations my parents have of me? Uh, what do the my expectations that grandparents have of their children? And I think it's a, it's a generational thing. Uh, the linear meritocracy that people imagine we have, and the reality is that three generations of families have benefited from a linear meritocracy people of my grandparents' generation, my parents' generation, they have lived through a changing world where they have seen the benefits of that linear meritocracy. And for them to not want to persuade my children to benefit from that ideal, takes a lot to hold them back. It takes a lot to hold them back and say, give your grandchildren a little bit of space. Because to their mind, they cannot imagine a rapidly changing world in any other shape or form. That's the experience that they lived through, that you had to get on this bandwagon that you've described as a linear meritocracy. I I, I take the point. But they saw the benefits, but how to persuade them that the world has changed so much, mom, just back off a little and let my son be my son and he'll find his own way. How convinced am I and how convincing can I be to my parents to give their grandkids a bit more space? But they will my kids, as they grow up, will assert themselves and demand that space. And the reality is that the kids who are leaving school today, the young adults, are already doing so. I don't think this is something that we need to campaign for or put up posters about or uh, change a huge policy to in order to start. It started some time ago. And what we need to do is think of the issues around education and investment in human capital so that we can support these types of changes in education and aspiration and employment going forward. I think it's happening already uh, and long may it continue.
6: There's a lady there on my left. Good afternoon and thank you to both speakers. Uh, I have two different questions. Uh, Professor George, uh, I liked your idea of civic ethos but to what extent is it dependent on a diversity that is static? So like race, for example, by and large, consistent throughout your life. You said that one of the strengths of Singapore is that we don't have religious dominance. But I imagine that some religions, by virtue of their purpose in life or for existence, is to spread the word, is to save as many souls as possible. So to what extent do you think that this civic ethos is workable insofar as we don't have groups that are seeking to expand that I guess is is for you and dr. Putucheri, um I guess I would like to know what you think of most of what of uh, dr. George's speech do you think that um, the diversity of political opinions is valuable to Singapore do you think that diversity or a marketplace of ideas is it's helpful f- for us, do you and your colleagues share this? And if so, and, or if not rather, what form do you think it should take, even in the context of, I guess, like fake news? And I think this is important for the exact reason that he raised, given cynicism, and h- how do you imagine that you can gain back this political trust and not have people think that any new laws, for example, like the fake news one, can be hijacked to suppress uh, political differences? Thank you.
1: Great. Uh, I wanted to throw in one question, uh, and thank you for raising that. Because actually, one question that was on my mind, and it's directed at both of you, was this question of religion. Uh, both of you mentioned, uh, you know, what was said in the morning about race being a construct, uh, and you mentioned about the, you know, our strength is that there is no uh, dominance of a particular uh, religious group. But I'm just wondering how you respond to the differentiation between race and religion, and whether it is the issue of religion that. That we may be confronted with uh, going forward, that puts you know your proposal of some kind of the, which is the same question about the civic model problematic uh, in the Singapore context, and it's directed at, bo- uh, at both of you. And uh, and you know as you answer, maybe we'll start with Cherian first, and then we can uh, finish off with uh, Dr. General, and then we'll have to close the, the
3: forum. Well, you can tell how open this IPS dialogue is that we are actually able to talk about religion. Uh, the which is a third rail in many societies. Yeah. Um, no, I still think, uh, dis- uh, despite uh, the worrying rise in um, sort of ag- aggressively exclusive uh, religions around the world uh, that have their, uh, you know, that have inspired uh, groups in Singapore, uh, politically. Um, it is not that serious a problem as it is elsewhere. Uh, you know, I, I'm, and you have to understand where I'm coming from, right? I study intolerance and hate around the world. So relative to the stuff that is going on <laughs> in many parts of the world, we're in pretty good shape. And I'm convinced that one reason why we're in good shape is that no matter, what, uh, no matter how uh, worrying some of these trends are within any faith group or m- uh, more accurately within subgroups within uh, the, the major religions, um, there's a limit to how much damage uh, that will be caused if those, um, those forces are not aligned with party political forces. That's when it becomes very, very potent elsewhere, yeah? when it becomes in the interest of a particular political party to court and partner with some of these um, exclusive and intolerant religious movements. Um, and it makes, that makes sense in countries that have a dominant religion, whether it's Indonesia or India or Myanmar or the US or most of Europe and so on. It simply does not make sense mathematically in Singapore. I mean, the, a political party could try it, it just will not succeed because uh, you know, even if you caught the 40% of Buddhists out there, you're going to alienate the 60% of everyone else. Uh, and the same applies to the, the, the religions with the smaller groups. And that does give us uh, you know, a certain reassurance that there is simply a limit to how much uh, religious divides can translate uh, elec- into electoral advantage. Uh, of course, uh, politics is more than elections. Yeah? Uh, um, so religious forces can influence the way debates are handled and so on. And yes, in that sense, I think we are at a worrying phase globally, as well as in Singapore, uh, because for for a mix of reasons, which I think sociologists or religion would be better equipped to explain, uh, you know, uh, the centre of gravity in many uh, of the world's religions is at the more intolerant and exclusive ends of the spectrum, it's important to realize that this wasn't always the case. Yeah? So this I'm convinced this moment will pass, uh, and it is up to us collectively to make sure this moment passes. It is especially up to those who are the most devout in your respective communities that make sure that that this moment passes. Uh, It was not too long ago that religious groups were at the forefront of progressive change around the world. Uh, Think of the major successes in human rights and democracy of the last 200 years, most of it fronted by religious uh, organisations. The Quakers in Britain helped get rid of slavery. Uh, the uh, think of the church's role in the Philippines' um, uh, people power in the American civil rights uh, movement. Uh, think of religion's role in the Indian nationalist movement that that we benefited from as well. Yeah, um, so there is a strong history of religion being on the side of tolerance of expanding human rights, uh, and it is it is depressing to see how it is. Uh, it, uh, you know, this strong tradition of religion standing up for the rights of others, including those uh, of other faiths, has somehow been relegated and, and instead the prominence, um, uh, the the, uh, the the wind is in fact at the backs of those who are more exclusive. Uh, it is not necessarily the case. And, you know, I, I would urge everyone of religion in this room to take it as their personal responsibility to... To move religion back to where it should be uh, on the side of right and of the side of the rights of people. Um, there are many inspiring stories around the world. I mean, uh, in Philadelphia, when, where I'm now on sabbatical, I visited the, uh, the leading human rights group that stands up for uh, Muslims in the US, yeah? the, uh, So the Philadelphia chapter of the Council on uh, American Islamic Relations. A small outfit, small NGO, CARE in Philadelphia is headed by a white Jewish American and its legal officer is an African-American Christian and a Muslim is its education officer. So the three full-time employees are in a, a Jew, a white Jew, a black American Christian and a Muslim immigrant and they are fighting for Muslim human rights. Right? This is what religion is capable of. It is capable of that. Uh, it is capable of coming together uh, in in interfaith struggles to pursue social justice. Uh, one of I think one of the proudest um, uh, achievements of Singapore, of course, is to host the world's oldest interfaith organisation, the, the IRO. Yeah, uh, you know, it's wonderful. It's part of it's part of the resources that we have. Sadly though, that is not where the action is, so to speak, in in terms of public life. Sadly though, the agenda has been taken, has been seized by a minority of leaders and their members in the world's great faith groups that are pushing intolerance and exclusivity. That needs to change. Thank
2: you, so I'll try and deal Firstly, with the issue of the race and religion, the differentiation and the conflation. Then, uh, I couldn't remember remember where the lady was speaking, from a marketplace of ideas with respect to political opinions and and deliberate online falsehoods. So let me start with um, religion. What he said, I agree with everything that Professor George has said. Does that mean that now the marketplace of ideas is broken down because I don't have a diversity of views from him? I hope not. I agree with him wholeheartedly on his statements that he has made about tolerance in religion. Um, But I think that sense of agreement, that sense that we have the same view on something doesn't mean that the process of engaging with these ideas doesn't mean that the marketplace of ideas is not functional. If we think of Uh, that sense of what we're doing with a select committee, for example, and uh, deliberate online falsehoods. Uh, You need that sense of trust and that sense of common understanding for the marketplace of ideas to function. So I wholeheartedly believe that a diversity of opinion, political or otherwise, is a strength to a society, to an organization, through a group of friends around a dinner table. It makes not just life more interesting, but it makes life better but you need that ability to come together and if you take the issue of news you have societies where they would be held up as uh, role models of plurality because you have the external uh, picture of uh, plurality by let's say for example having multiple broadcast channels and multiple newspapers and Multiple publications and so forth. But that doesn't actually mean that external uh, appearance doesn't mean that you have a functioning marketplace of ideas if everybody that holds on to an extreme right wing view only subscribes to one particular newspaper and everybody who subscribes to a different type of paper is by definition uh, a liberal or a socialist or some other label. The marketplace of ideas comes when people who have opposing views can come together, potentially even share a stage together. Potentially even wear the same uniform and be in the same political party. The appearance of diversity is not the same as the functioning benefits of diversity. And I would argue that if you're looking for political diversity through the traditional appearance of a uh, multi-party system and that that by itself is generating the functional outcomes of of diversity, that's not enough. You actually have to have an engagement of ideas. I think there is a diversity of political opinions in Singapore. I don't think there is an obstruction to having those views brought out. Today we have heard a multitude of views on stage from a variety of people in the audience, and I expect there'll be a whole lot of online commentary and I'm sure there'll be a whole bunch of media commentary as well. And within our political parties, you know that there are diverse opinions and diverse ideas. The struggle is to make sure that that sense of engagement and benefit from diversity is something that every new new generation of people joining parties, academia, courses of study, coming on as journalists, broadcast or print, that they feel a value and a sense of engagement in a functioning marketplace of ideas that generates the appropriate and positive outcomes through diversity. I agree with Professor George that our diversity is a strength. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I don't think it needs to be managed. It needs to be managed on the assumption that it is, must be, and will be a strength for us as a nation, as a society. And that does require that sense of trust and that ability to come together with a common set of aspirations. Thank you very much.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, join me in thanking the two speakers and I'll uh, draw the
0: panel to a close. Ladies and gentlemen, tea is now served. Please be back by 3.20pm. Thank you.